Hey there, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at high growth companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own startup, Sprig, an all-in-one research platform. In each episode of the People Driven Products podcast, our team talks with product managers, user researchers, and designers at some of the most successful customer-centric companies in the world to learn how they build products people want and love. Today, I'm talking with Marty Kagan, partner at Silicon Valley Product Group. Many of you know him as the author of Inspired and Empowered, but Marty has also held executive product positions from Netscape to eBay, startups, and Fortune 500 companies, and now continues to share his insights with product teams around the world, focusing on how to build effective product teams, how to measure success, and much more. Marty, thanks for being on the show with me today. We're really excited to have you. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Ryan. So going back to my roots as a product manager, I was the first product manager at Weebly and really helped scale that company and the product team. And one of the required readings that we had was the first edition of your inspired book. And as we discussed on the prep call, I was also at the the book launch for your a second edition. And I was actually just a few weeks into starting Sprig and got my autograph copy and you wrote, good luck with your new adventure. And I thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to need it. I'm only a few weeks in and, you know, statistically, this might not go that far, but certainly here a few years later, uh, have done some still very early on in the journey, but something I look back on as definitely a formative moment. And for those that are maybe not familiar with your inspired book, which will be touching on some of the concepts today, what really encouraged you to write that book and what was really the origin story? Yeah, well, you know, product has been around forever in the industry, but I learned very early on from the person who coached me, actually, that what most people mean by product and product management was very different than what we meant by it in a tech company. And I couldn't find a book. The books I found, I remember finding some books with that title, Product Management, and showing it to him. And he was like, yeah, I told you, stay away from that. That is not what we mean. That's from the consumer packaged goods world. It's a totally different scenario. And so um, anyway, so I really just didn't have titles. And so I felt like, well, you know, in truth, I kind of have become known very much around product management, but it's really not through my efforts. My interest is product teams. It's always been product teams. I mean, I started as an engineer and then I learned design and then I learned product. I love product teams. I I literally, in every example, I know great products come from teams, not from product managers. They come from product teams. But there's lots of good stuff for engineers and there's even good stuff for designers. But what bothered me was there was so little that talked about product management, at least in the way that I was taught and I could see good companies doing. So I was like, well, uh, you know, maybe I should try to write a book. That's where it came from, was that desire to share the techniques of good product teams. Awesome. And the second edition as well has been super impactful here at Sprig. It's required reading for the product team, the design team, even our sales team, it's required as well. (laughs) And so definitely one of those books that it's got to be on someone's desk here if you work at the company and something that, you know, has really helped form my own career, but also a lot of the work that we do 
here at Sprig. And one of those key concepts, and I think this was one of the big innovations and breakthroughs for me, is really when we think around, like you mentioned, there's so many books on Scrum and Agile and for engineers, story pointing, it's very, very well defined. There's a lot of process and workflow. But for product management, there wasn't really a clear approach to building products or solutions or defining those and really moving away from the product spec to the prototype in a continuous manner and that nature of continuous discovery. And so I love to hear a little bit about how continuous discovery and research specifically is integrated into that continuous discovery process. Yeah, well, such a big topic really in terms of Despite the move to Agile over, what, the last 20 years, most teams are still, you know, I'm not, I try not to be religious about this, but they're still waterfall. Their engineers work in sprints. Great. You know, that's like the easy part. The hard part is what they build is still so waterfall driven. It's still driven by sales. It's driven by executives. It's driven by roadmaps. It's just, there's no real agility in any meaningful sense. And that is not what good product teams are taught. Like with the book that bothered me. And I realized there were really three things that it goes way beyond agile. And honestly, it goes beyond lean startup. There are three things that really matter. And honestly, it's not about religion. It's not about process. And the best teams know that they really do. And those three things first is, are you addressing the risks up front? In other words, every product we worry about, is it valuable? Is it usable? Is it feasible? Is it viable? You might not use that same taxonomy that I use, but most people do product. Those are the things we worry about. Those are four distinct risks. And so the first question is, are you figuring that out before you ask your engineers to build this over the next several weeks or months? Or are you figuring that out in discovery? The second big thing is, look, how are you solving these problems? All right, so you got a problem to solve. Great, you finally got management to stop giving you roadmaps of features, and now they're giving you problems to solve. How are you solving them? If it's just a product manager defining requirements and then giving it to a designer to make it pretty and then giving it to engineers at sprint planning, you're still waterfall. <laughs> you haven't got any of the benefits. Uh, you haven't nearly changed anything fundamental. So what we're really looking for is, are you solving problems collaboratively? is uh, engineering needs to, informs the design and the functionality as much as the other way around. So that's critical. And the third thing is like, what's the prize here? Is the goal to ship features? That's what most roadmaps are. They're a bunch of features and projects on a roadmap. Or is the goal to solve problems and achieve results? And so the third thing is really, no, what we need to focus on is not output, but outcomes. So have you addressed that outcome? Have you solved that problem? That's the only real prize that makes sense for a product company, unless you're Accenture or something and your job is just to deliver on requirements. You know, for a product company, the only real requirement is to solve the problem in ways your customers love but work for the business. And so that's really what discovery is about. How do you do those three things? How do you uh, address these risks? That's why, you know, I love discovery techniques. It's one of my favorite topics. Lots of prototyping, lots of testing those prototypes, lots of different kinds of prototypes because there are different kinds of risks. There are situations where we need quantitative data and situations where we need qualitative data. And so 
yeah, are you using those techniques? Are we working the way we need to? In other words, you know, really, if you have to pick one thing that's really critical, it's your engineers. Are your engineers just coding or are they inventing? And the good team's consistent source of innovation are the engineers. So I'm looking for that in the collaboration. And then I'm looking for a team that knows what meaningful results really is, you know, are. And it's not just shipping features. We, you know, we should be way past that in our industry. It's a shame for so many companies we're not. Awesome. Super helpful there on just thinking around continuous discovery. And just so I understand, thinking around the future development lifecycle of understanding the problem space, understanding the solution, defining the product maybe through a prototype, delivering the product with engineering, you know, who's actually delivering that and measuring that. Do you consider the continuous discovery process all phases of feature development or really only maybe a subset of that process? Well, I view it as half. Basically, we've always had this. It just goes by lots of different phrases. I refer to this as continuous discovery and delivery today. But you know, the way it was first explained to me, I think this was the original from Fred Brooks way, like really at the birth of the industry was there's always been two essential products in software. Figure out what to build. In other words, build the right product and then build the product right. Right. We have two very different sets of needs, discovering the right product and then doing a product quality implementation, scalable, reliable, fault tolerant, performant. You know, it's hard. Delivery is hard. I often catch myself, you know, I spend so much time talking about discovery that sometimes I catch myself, you know, what about delivery? Delivery is hard, too. It's just that I think that most teams are actually pretty decent at delivery, but they're really weak in discovery. And what's really frustrating is good teams at delivery kind of mask that. They end up redoing things over and over, not because they're doing anything wrong. It's because there's no discovery going on. So it's really just throw it against the wall, see if it works. And if not, try something else. Got it. Okay. So discovery is really the first half of that process, just to hone in there. It is, but it's continuous Roughly. too. Just continuous, like, you know, yes, continuous. Yeah, your engineers don't stop developing. Just right. like you, they are always it's, delivering. Now, in truth, you know, if if it's a hardware device and there is kind of a discovery phase and then a the implementation phase, there's more of that. But you know, even in hardware, companies that do a lot of hardware are constantly working to move more of it into software and to get more malleability here. Just like, for example, over-the-air updates on a car, right? That is an example of moving this ability to do continuous discovery and delivery, even with something like a physical vehicle. So it's a continuous thing. Someday you generate big results and some days not much at all. It's, it's normal. Got it. Okay. And how do you see research in that continuous discovery process? Is it maybe only a certain part of continuous discovery? You know, maybe we're really, really at the beginning, or do you see it throughout that discovery process? Well, I mean, this is sort of a favorite topic. I'm a, you know, long time convert to the value of user research. And, you know, so it's a big topic, first of all, you know, it's useful to talk about the two kinds, two main kinds of uh, user research, the generative and evaluative. So most of the time, 
in product discovery, we've been given a problem to solve. So we're not looking for other problems to solve. We were given a problem to solve. That comes from the product strategy, which is derived from the product vision. So yeah, we were given a problem to solve. And what we're doing is we're trying out solutions to find them, find one that works. And you know, evaluative research is, can we quickly figure out does this work? When we say, does this work for users and customers, it really means two things. Can they figure out how to use it? And then would they use it? Those are the two things we really care about. I describe that as usability and value. Now, uh, you know, when the answer is yes, which, you know, the answer usually is no, right? <laughs> Most of our iterations is, well, that wasn't the best idea, or that wasn't the best approach, or that wasn't the best design. So it takes a while of iteration to get to the point. And of course, the learning is what causes us to iterate. Now, you can do this qualitatively or quantitatively and advocate both, but for really rapid learning, it's hard to beat qualitative user research, evaluative user research. Now, it's also true that when you do this, and, and just for the record, I know you know this, Ryan, but for the record, I advocate every product team that's doing user-facing products do this kind of qualitative learning and testing every week. This is not a once a quarter thing. This is an every week thing. Because if you don't do it at least every week, you're waiting too long to try your ideas on users again. So um, this is just like a heartbeat of a product team. But every once in a while, you don't just learn, you know, how to make this better, but you also encounter a new problem. Maybe something that we're not even tackling, but maybe we should. And that's generative research. It generates a new opportunity. And we love that because, you know, sometimes that actually can change the course of a company. There's a lot of great examples of that. Some people, it's such a significant thing, they'll call that a discovery pivot. That is a great thing to happen. It doesn't happen all that often, right? Normally, it's just the day-to-day -day work. If we're trying to solve this problem, we're getting better and better, but we're not there yet. It's just evaluative. But uh, occasionally, we find new things, and those are great opportunities. And I always encourage the teams to share that immediately with the product leaders because it probably, if it's that meaningful, it's almost certainly going to impact the product strategy, especially for the next iterations, the next quarter. You know, we like both. Yeah, they're both really valuable. They're a little different, of course. A lot of the teams I work with wish they could do more generative because it is really fun. <laughs> but it's also fair, you know, um, this is another whole topic. But, you know, when we talk about empowering teams, we really are trying to get leaders to give teams room to do some work, right? To show what they can do. But it's a give and take. And empowerment doesn't mean that the leaders should just let teams go figure out what they want to work on. That would be more like chaos, right? Or just anarchy. You know, is everybody going in a hundred different directions? The chances of you delivering on the vision of Sprig in that model would be very low. So, you know, you're, you've got a strategy and, and now it's really about executing on. So it's not you just go do anything, but in exchange for the room to do real discovery, Teams got to realize they have to kind of focus on the problems the company needs them to solve. Got it. So a little bit top down in most cases, which is just how it's going to be for many of us as you know, companies are larger, a little bit more mature. And before we get into 
really thinking through evaluating value, which is something that I think will be an interesting topic. I know that in some regards, you have seen surveys poorly used or maybe not the best method. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts there on surveys and how you think they might be valuable for teams in the continuous discovery process. Yeah, it's another good topic for sure. If the purpose is to optimize something people are already using, surveys can be very helpful as an optimization technique. So if you're trying to understand, okay, you know these people are doing these three things and you'd like to get some insight as to what's going on in their head about why those three choices or whatever, of course you could ask them. They don't need to know what's possible in order to answer that. That's literally just like, what are you thinking here? Or what are you doing here? What is your intent here? That is fine. So the problem is, you know, it's always what these The problem is surveys are so abused, just like um, lies, damn lies, and statistics. It's kind of the same thing. Surveys can be incredibly abused. Roadmaps, they're not inherently evil, but in most companies, they're incredibly damaging because they're being, you know, misused. So if somebody is trying to just tee up an argument for their pet project, surveys are great. If you're trying to make the product better for customers, be careful. Got it. Yeah, it makes total sense. And what we often see our customers use are in-product microsurveys today is the optimization. So you're absolutely right. And you could see maybe a company has a 15% conversion rate. If they can get to a 20% conversion rate, very meaningful, very high impact. And most of our templates, I believe all of our templates, but I don't want to go on the record and say all, but at least most do focus on the problems, the friction, what's not working about this experience. We definitely recommend against what to build. You know, what does our roadmap look like? What should we do next quarter? Because you're absolutely right that survey is probably not, you don't want to ask the customer, you know, what to build next. But I do agree, and we've seen just fantastic outcomes from our customer base around uncovering that friction, improving the usability. And so where would that piece fit in continuous discovery? Or is that really around the continuous delivery of maybe optimizing the product and really letting those engineers make those optimizations with that feedback loop perhaps along the way? Yeah. When it's in production, it's usually a delivery, you know, delivery. Yeah. So for example, a survey on production is great. You can also do a survey in discovery, which I like actually, you know, you can, we'll, we'll get to that because you asked earlier about judging value. There's things we can do at the right time, but yeah. And the other thing, for example, like an AB test, AB test can be used for discovery or delivery. It's absolutely applicable in discovery and delivery delivery. It's used for optimization. So, you know, we got a couple call to actions. Let's figure out which one works better. Right. We run an A-B test. That's in production. It's great. The more data we get, the more traffic we get, rather, the faster we can make a choice and just move forward. So there are a lot of good optimization techniques. I don't usually talk much about them just because they're easy and most teams do them. (laughs) It's the discovery techniques. You know, the way I often phrase it is, well, like you did, if we can get If we can get a conversion from 9% to 11%, that's a big deal, actually, if we can convert on the right thing. If, however, we know Amazon, let's say, or Shopify, let's say, is converting at 18%, you probably are not going to get there from optimization. (laughs) You're probably going to need to go do more qualitative and figure out, like, I love talking to people 
that have bailed on our product. I don't try to convince them. I so totally respect your choice. You know, I'm not trying to convince you at all. What I'm trying to understand is like, what did we do wrong? What are we missing? Why is it that you unsubscribe? I'm always amazed. So many products. I love products, right? I sign up for everything. I buy everything and I try everything. I love to try products, but it always amazes me. So many products, you'll, you know, you'll do a subscription and you'll find the product is just terrible. And sometimes I'll even cancel the subscription way before it's due, just because I know I'm never using this piece of crap again. That's it. Right? You're not you coming know? back. <laughs> yeah, I'm not coming back. And I'm amazed that nobody, I don't even get an email. I don't even, even though I have went to the trouble of literally, you know, cancel, didn't get an email saying, you know, hey, would you mind talking to one of the product managers or would you, or hell, even just, can you answer a survey? <laughs> I, I unsubscribe, anything, nothing. They literally, and I'm, the reason that's so shocking to me is that is like the prime learning opportunity. You know, this is the kind of thing that's way beyond an optimization. You realize, oh man, fundamentally, we are letting people down here. You know, we're never going to optimize our way to that. We're never going to A-B test our way to that. We need to fundamentally rethink this part of the equation. And it's amazing to me. And of course, it's also no surprise. The good companies I know, they're all over that. Yeah. You know, you'll be lucky if 24 hours goes by before somebody actually calls you and says, hey, you know, I'm a product manager or I work for this company and I would love to talk to you about what we can learn to do better. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big breakthroughs that I've been really kind of evangelizing with Sprig is that so many product teams don't realize how important, and in many cases, their users care more about the product experience than sometimes the product teams. Yeah. And I was talking to a meal in a box delivery company, and you can imagine being someone who three dinners out of the week, you're cooking your dinner with this meal in a box. And if someone asked, how is that experience? Is this working for you? Or you cancel your subscription, you know, think about how important that moment might be for someone who's relying on this service to cook dinner every night. But you have maybe a product manager or a designer who might have that passion, but are they really relying on that? Or is it a small business owner who is relying on a service to run their business? And maybe they discontinue with that service and someone does ask them, you better would imagine, you know, they're going to respond because that was a really important product in their lives. And so I think with research, a lot of product teams don't realize just their users often care more than they do. And if you reach out and you ask, they'll absolutely tell you, here's what I think, here's what didn't work for me, or here's what really did work for me. And here's why I'm excited about your product, or here's why it's not working. Oh, that's so true. And I think Part of the root is there is a misunderstanding, I think, in our industry about whether, you know, you as a product manager or product team are really the same as the customer. Just because you dog food, right, use your own product that you're somehow the customer. And it really misses the point. It really is so many bad decisions are made. Because people assume that because this product manager thinks this is just fine, that they think it's just fine. But it's really not. There's so many reasons there's different motivations. And so, yeah, well, I know you believe in this too. Uh, there is just no substitute for going to the real users and customers. 
the people who rely on it far more than probably anyone at the company in most cases. Absolutely. Obviously, in the company, you're first of all, you're paid to work there. Your customers are paying yeah. you. How about <laughs> exactly. that for a right there? So people fall into that trap. And it's a shame because it's uh, really doing a disservice to themselves and to the customers. And then I just want to make sure we covered everything between research optimization versus research discovery and how, you know, microsurveys really on the optimization side. But is there anything else you wanted to add or cover on, you know, just the differences between those two and how those fit into the continuous discovery process? I like to frame it is that that optimization will help you, you know, know what's really going on and uh, improve it to the degree you can, but you can't really understand why it couldn't be significantly better. That's very hard to do in optimization. You really have to move to discovery techniques for that. That's what I meant by like, if you're going to try to convert like Shopify or convert like Amazon, you're going to have to dig a lot deeper and really get in and talk to people. It doesn't have to be, you know, verbally, but one way or another, you're going to have to go deeper. Got it. So to play this back, we have local maximum, right? We're optimization, we're getting some uh, marginal increases, some optimization, perhaps, you know, microsurveys, really great opportunity there. You can reach many people here from all the different browsers and edge cases and different experiences. But then if you want to really hit that absolute maximum, you want to make those bigger breakthroughs that's where the true qualitative, really digging into people, talking to them, and that's where there's the generative, and then there's the evaluating the value, which is really that next step as well. Is that's that right. to play the pack? Is that right? That's great. It reminded me too, a friend of mine from Google's user research likes to describe it this way. Every time you talk to a user about these discovery things, it's like a piece of the puzzle. And eventually you see enough of the puzzle filled in, you can really see what you're missing here. I've always liked that metaphor. It really resonates with me because it's so unpredictable. It feels random at times. I mean, it's always good to talk to people. Sometimes people say, but how many people do you need to talk to? I'm like, as many as possible for as long as possible. Right. You know, I can't say like do 15 and you will definitely know what you need to do to fix your product. But it is like a piece of the puzzle. Every time you talk to another person about their experiences, you know, it builds this richer view of what is going on holistically. And eventually you do start to see real patterns, meaning in the noise. It's really priceless. And I know that sounds old school to talk, to talk about how valuable it is to talk to customers, but it really is true. Yeah, it really is. It's, you just get that clarity of you know higher resolution better understanding the situation what's working maybe you don't always act on the insights we we're talking to a team the other day they're like hey we don't have to act we don't act on everything and i think that's okay but it's giving you better clarity about what's working or not working and forming short-term long-term together and so really digging in and going forward here talking about evaluating value i'd love to just hear a little bit more about your perspective on evaluating value and some of the techniques that product teams can leverage really tactical techniques that they can leverage and take home and start implementing tomorrow. Yeah. Well, um, most teams are comfortable asking about usability. We've been doing that forever. We know how to test usability and you should. But the thing is, usability is really not the hard part. The hard part is value. Now, you can't evaluate value until after they know what the product is supposed to do, right? So they have to kind of know what you're talking about. In the usability part of testing, that's what they're learning. 
I mean, first of all, we are learning that whether they could use it or not, but whether they could use it or not, at least they know what it is. And so now you could say, all right, you, we know whether you could or couldn't use it, but what we're now interested in is, would you use it? Or would you buy it? I mean, if it's a new product, would you buy it? A subscription, like for food service, food delivery, would you buy this? But if they've already bought it, which is many times, especially existing products, then the question is, okay, if we build this new capability, would you use it? But that's all value. Now, we have lots of techniques for measuring value. Some are qualitative, some are quantitative. Part of what matters is what level of confidence do we need? What level of evidence do we need? Sometimes just some opinion is fine. If it's not a big consequence decision, like if you get it wrong, it's not a big deal, you can always fix it. Then just your opinion as a team, talking to users all the time, that's fine. If it's something that's got more of a consequence, we'll usually run a test, an explicit test. Now, even when we run a test, there's sort of two main bars there. One is just getting, getting evidence. So just evidence, not proof. That's the third book. The next level would be proof. Sometimes we want proof. Sometimes I insist on proof because we're going to put significant money out there or we're going to put significant exposure for the company out there. We really need proof. In our world, of course, proof just means statistically significant results. I mean, at, at the level of proof, we're almost always, but not always, doing an A-B test. And so that's kind of our gold standard for that. And that's, of course, quantitative. But for evidence, a lot, in fact, the majority of things that I see, evidence is what we're after. So we're not trying to be proof. We're not trying to delude ourselves into a proof, but we want to really feel much more confident about whether this is the right direction or not. And so we will collect qualitative evidence, which is pretty easy to do. This is what I was uh, arguing before. It's like, why all companies don't do this? As simple as talking to people about like, not, did you like this? Not, what would you change in the interface? Ridiculous questions like that. What we're trying to do is like, okay, would you buy it? Or uh, why not? That why not is probably my single favorite. You know, when we do things qualitatively, there's a great Elon Musk quote about this too, but it's just all about finding the reasons you wouldn't use it, not why you would. Most people are nice anyway, and so they'll say nice things. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the reasons they wouldn't buy it. And again, if it's just evidence, we're not trying to prove anything. We're trying to learn. So we have lots of ways to judge this depending on the kind of product. It's not just money that you pay for products with. You can pay with reputation. You can pay with time. And so we have ways to quantify that. So, yeah, and I would encourage, you know, in, in Inspired, there are many chapters on many of the techniques. There's always different techniques people are thinking of to measure value qualitatively, especially. Quantitatively, it's pretty straightforward. And things like a fake door test will measure it quantitatively. Things like a landing page test will measure it quantitatively. So we have good ways of doing it quantitatively, but qualitatively is so fast, so easy. I'm always encouraging teams to do more of that. Got it. And for evaluating value, what is really the artifact that you recommend that really testing against? Is that the prototype or is that, you mentioned A-B test as well. Is there maybe an MVP or a fake door test that you're testing even further up before the prototypes? Help me kind of understand what that looks like. Well, a fake door test would be a prototype. That would be one kind of prototype. There are many. So you can do this with either product or a prototype. So for example, if I start coaching or advising a company and they already have a product, I'm like, 
you already have, just consider that a prototype for now. Just use the product. Let's figure out why people aren't engaging with us. Now, if they don't have a product yet, it's like, of course, a prototype is like one to 5% of the effort of a product. Why wouldn't you do a prototype? Let's do that. And of course, there's more too. I'm, I'm oversimplifying a bit about prototypes. There are four main kinds of prototypes, and it really depends on which risk we're going after. But if it's a value that we're focused on, which you've that's what you're asking about value, then usually we need a high fidelity prototype. It needs to be very realistic because there's a lot of uh, a lot of intangibles like emotion and trust that come through on the higher fidelity that don't come through in the lower fidelity. So, you know, there's a lot, there's nuance there about what the right tool for the job is, but just look at the, the rise of use of tools like Figma and Envision and Adobe's tools, Microsoft's tools. These are really realizing that, wow, this is a much faster way to learn whether this stuff works or not or why it doesn't work. Awesome. So to playing that back, creating, let's say a Figma prototype, asking those questions. So as you saw with our recent launch, a way to embed video questions right within those prototypes, asking those questions and seeing those responses. And it's really around, it sounds like quantifying the investment that the user would be making, whether that's resources and their resources, which would be time, money, or reputation and quantifying those. And is this really where the art of research and product management comes into play? Or is there really a benchmark or way to quantify whether you have that confidence or not? Yeah. Well, this is why I love for teams to have access to a professional user researcher. For the same reason, by the way, I want teams to have access to a professional data analyst or data scientist. So, because, you know, user researchers are helping us answer good questions qualitatively and data science and data analysts are helping us answer quantitatively. So, this way, we know that we're not making sort of those rookie mistakes that a lot of teams make. I try to tell people the higher order bit is this always good to talk to customers. The more, the better. You know, I would take that over anything else. Talk to customers. Now, if we can go one step further, well, I really want a high quality interaction with those customers. I want to take the most learning from it. I want to you know, avoid making common problems. And a user researcher can really ensure that pretty easily. I mean, they do this all day, every day. They know how to enable good learning. And so how we frame our questions, uh, even if they are questions, what is the most appropriate way? You know, what's really going on is we want, like I said, people are nice generally, especially when you're talking to them one-on-one, even over Zoom, they're nice. But what we want to know really is, would they really use this thing? We don't want just a nice answer. We want to know, would they really, are they serious? And we have all these different ways of telling, are they serious? You know, one way they're serious is if they pull out their credit card. That's usually, <laughs> money seems to talk pretty consistently. So that's often done, obviously, as a way to see. But, you know, if it's not a for-fee service, they can pay other ways. Like we said, like, I mean, just there's so many I could cite here. I don't want to overly influence, but there's a product I thought did a really good job of this by asking basically it was a business software product. So they use the NPS question, which is, you know, a net promoter score is kind of a different thing. And I'm just talking about using the question, not the survey, but in that what they normally you say, how likely would you be to recommend this to your friends? The way they did it was, would you recommend this to your boss? And of course, that was a question, but then they had a field for them to type in their boss's email. 
Now, it didn't really send anything to their boss's email, but wow, you could see the difference when users are like, okay, if I put my boss's email in there and they're going to get a note from me saying, we should really consider purchasing that. I'm putting my reputation out there, right, on the line. If I, and you know, I would, even with you, right, if you asked me about some tool and I told you, you should get it and you got it and you thought it was terrible, what are you going to think of me? Right. You know, that's probably the last time you're going to ask for my advice. So this is a very meaningful way, even though no money is involved. So my point is, that's an example where teams think through when money isn't the issue. In the case of B2B, the users are not the buyers, right? The users are the users. So, but the users often can have influence over that buyer, uh, especially in good companies, right? And so we're trying to see. So you could ask the user, would they pay money? And they'd say, I won't pay any money, but the company might. But if you could ask a user, would they literally recommend this to their boss? That's meaningful. So, I mean, that's where it's coming from. Got it. So super helpful, Marty. And in the early days of Sprig, I often would talk to people about the product and share we're working on. And one of the key indicators I was looking for is would they want to spend another meeting with me, even though the that's, product was not developed yet. That's paying with time. Yeah, it's that's paying with time. absolutely right. And that's for a lot of people and products, that's very, very meaningful. There are no yes. way they're going to give you another five minutes, let alone another hour, if they're not like, this could work. Exactly. And that was a leading indicator for me, even though the product was not built yet. If they want to spend more time, they want to help form the solution. People I didn't know because yep. it solved a problem that they had around understanding their own customers. And so more tactically thinking around, let's say I'm a product manager, I'm working on my roadmap for or my outcome-based roadmap for <laughs> next quarter. And there's a couple ideas that have been floating around and I want to really you know, evaluate the value of one of these. Any recommendations on you know, just assessing that value in, that, in the earlier phases to understand what's working or not working? Well, I mean, the very first thing I would do, and you know, this is what we coach the product teams to do really quickly is let's prototype that idea, you know, with these modern tools, never been easier. And then let's put it in front of some real people. I know, you know, let me talk about this in general. And then let's talk about what I, you know, I, I told you, I really like what Sprig has done recently because of where I'm going here. So let's talk to, so we put a prototype, we put it in front of some people and we see well, number one, could they use it? Number two, would they use it? Like we talked about. One of the things I really like, you know, in the product world, you can always find people to test with, right? I mean, can, you can go up to anybody. It's called Starbucks testing, right? You can go up to anybody and just say, hey, you know, you ever book a hotel for a vacation? Let me, and that's fine. And, you know, you, you, the truth is you'll find some friction there if there is friction to be found. But, you know, asking somebody like that, would you book your travel this way, is not the same as finding somebody who's booking a trip right now. You know, that's referred to, I think it's been referred to for a long time as the moment of seduction. I don't know exactly what the origin of that phrase is, but I've heard that my whole career. That's the moment. In other words, people are in the moment. They are in that moment. And your head's in a different place. So I literally, you know, if you're looking for a getaway, which probably all are because of the stage of the pandemic, I would love to get out of the house. So you're like, your head's in a different place versus when you hypothetically, would you ever do this? So I don't even like using user research firms anymore that are just sort of screening. And you know, you've seen the thing. Panels. Yeah, why? Yeah. We can do so much better. We can get people in the moment. 
We can uh, often called intercept testing, right? We can get people in the moment. That is so much better. Certainly, it's better for us. It's actually better for them too because they are already they're there. They're in the middle of this right now. I'm very bullish on you know your new offerings there because I think that's the future. I mean, we've we've wanted and needed that for a long time. Yeah, and what I've seen in my experience is actually going to panels and putting them in hypothetical situations. Let's imagine you are booking a trip or let's imagine you are buying a house has actually led me in several situations in the wrong direction because it's not really meaningful research. It's not really insightful research. And it's not someone in that actual moment who might understand the landscape and the other solutions and the real pains and the real solutions. And, you know, we're actually talking to our head of marketing yesterday and we're talking about making some adjustments to how we do our outreach to potential prospects for Sprig. And it's like, let's not even reach out to people who are already customers that fit that profile. Let's find ways to reach out to people who are on our homepage, evaluating our solution and actually get them into a kind of a research process, knowing that not only are they in the space, but they're in the exact moment of the journey with our service that we're interested in really understanding. And so I think that the best teams are the ones that have that high resolution talking to not only the right people, but the right people in the right moment of the journey and then conducting your qualitative research with that really specific group of folks. Yeah, there's just so much more valuable when they're in the moment. You know, there are good techniques today to do that. And so, yeah, you know, the problem with panels is it slides way too much towards the focus group direction. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. Hopefully, between the two of us, we'll get lots of people doing this stuff. (laughs) Definitely on a journey here together. Marty, before we wrap up, We talked about evaluating value for maybe an item on the roadmap. And let's say that we've really quantified that value. Maybe we've gone out to a researcher and, you know, she's quantified that value in that unbiased way with that high quality interaction. Or maybe we've done that evaluation of value ourselves, but we're not really seeing the level that maybe an executive, you know, communicated or had that really intuition about building something. How do you recommend for those folks who maybe need to push back or maybe steer the team in a different direction? Any tactical advice for the product managers listening? Yeah, that's a good question too, because that's reality, what you just described. That happens a lot. And I often find myself coaching the product teams on this because a lot of them seem to think their job as a product team is to validate these ideas. And yeah, of course, we've been talking about validating ideas. Yes, you should be doing that. But they tend to fall into this trap of becoming like the gatekeeper. In other words, they'll go back to the executive and say, no, that idea didn't work. (laughs) Customers don't like that. That's not our job. Our job is not to say that this idea is bad. Our job is to find an idea that is good, (laughs) right? So that's what we're, normally the answer to that is let's try something different. Let's adjust. Normally it's just an iteration. We just iterate on the prototype. Sometimes we have to pivot on the prototype and take a different, you know, swing at the problem. But our job is to solve the problem. Our job is not to tell a bunch of stakeholders why their ideas are dumb. So, you know, that's a common problem. And it's partly because they're still thinking like a feature team, not like an empowered product team, where they just think, okay, they're given a roadmap of features and they just now they're doing discovery, meaning they're validating those ideas. But no, they're what they're really there to do is solve that problem. Yeah. That's what I encourage them to do. 
go back to them, yes, but bring them a solution that actually does work. Got it. So I think that's super helpful for everyone listening as well, is that really understand the problem that that maybe that executive is looking to solve with that idea and then really set that context. Let's align on the problem space of what you're hoping to achieve. And maybe instead of saying squashing that, <laughs> let's say it doesn't pass the test of the research that you've done, is that you can maybe come back and say, hey, here's a different solution that achieves what you're looking to achieve throughout the many different exploration we've done with engineering and customers and product and different folks. And really just framing that maybe from the beginning yeah. as that outcome. That speaks actually really well to your recommendation on outcome-based roadmaps. Because if you get that executive alignment with your executive team on outcomes, then it's it helps it set you up for success of then figuring out that idea. And you're not stuck with one idea that you have to make work. Yeah. You know, if the company already has something like outcome-based roadmaps, you're already ahead of the game. This is going to be much easier. Problem is like 99% of companies don't. They have output roadmaps. They have features and projects. And there, instead of just saying that idea is a dumb idea, we would rather say to them, we did try that idea. Here's what happened. Here's why customers didn't want to use that. So we ended up trying this and we came up with a solution that actually does work. That's really what I try to coach teams. That will help the organization learn there is a different way of working. It gets to a better result. And even though they're still doing the old roadmap thing. In which you said 99% of us are. And so it's really just steering them in that other direction, nudging yeah. them elsewhere. Awesome. Yeah. And last question, this one we always wrap up with. I'm very curious to hear from you on this, but what's your best piece of advice for all the product managers, product teams, engineers, designers to create products people love? Great question. It is empowered engineers. If you have engineers that are empowered to help figure out the solution, not just implement that solution, that's the most important thing. And the, the sort of other spin to that, the magic happens. I've said this a thousand times to people. The magic happens when those empowered engineers see real users and customers. There so you if you can combine kind of what we've been talking about the last hour with not just product managers and designers being there, but also key engineers being there, now you've got a chance at something impressive. I love that. And that feeds right into our vision for Sprig of democratizing research. We offer limited seats for a reason. You know, from the beginning, I wanted engineers, designers, executives, marketing, sales, all in Sprig, looking at the insights, watching the video clips, all engaging in research. And so love that. I think it's super valuable advice for everyone listening. Engage the engineers, engage you know the people building the product and pull them back into the customer research process. Marty, thank you so much for joining today. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed it, Ryan. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Driven Products. If you'd like to request a guest for a future episode, go ahead and email marketing at sprig.com. If you want a platform that can help you make customer-informed product decisions in real time, be sure to check out sprig.com. Let's face it, most product managers and designers don't conduct user research as much as they would like to because the process of polling lists, sending email surveys, and finding interview participants is slow 
and time-consuming. And at larger companies with in-house user research teams, researchers are often rushed through projects to meet aggressive deadlines or product teams forego research from the research team because there's not enough time for it. That's why I started Sprig to help product and research teams learn from their customers at the speed of modern product development with asynchronous video interviews, concept testing, and microsurveys. Sprig is used by over 600 startups, hyper-growth companies, and enterprise product teams like Dropbox, Adobe, Loom, and Square. Try it free or learn more at sprig.com.